$15 million raised, serving uh, under 500 customers. Again, pay, paying, you know, call it, they're doing well more than $3 million per month. He won't admit that, but the big smile confirms it. Over 90% annual retention rate. Again, helping these agencies, these marketing folks, these analysts better understand how to capture, use, and gain insights, actionable insights from the data sets they're pouring over every day. This is episode 729. Coming up tomorrow morning, we'll learn from Cam Miller and how he and his co-founder left a JP Morgan job to sell $600,000 plus in baby clothes. How'd they do it? But first, here's today's episode. This is The Top, where I interview entrepreneurs who are number one or number two in their industry in terms of revenue or customer base. You'll learn how much revenue they're making, what their marketing funnel looks like, and how many customers they have. I'm now at $20,000 per talk. Five and six million. He is hell-bent on global domination. We just broke our 100,000 unit sold mark. And I'm your host, Nathan Latka. Hello, everybody. Nathan here. My guest today is David Dunn. He's the CEO and co-founder of Velocity, a marketing intelligence company that harnesses data for leading brands and agencies. In the seven years since founding, Velocity has enabled marketers to make data-driven decisions that optimize marketing spend. Dunn is currently leading the firm's next chapter into artificial intelligence. David, are you ready to take us to the top? Thanks, Nathan. Very nice to meet you, and thanks for taking the time. You bet. So people throw around AI and artificial intelligence all the time right now because it's sexy. Why are you convinced that's the direction your agency needs to go in? Yeah, so um, as a company, we're focused on how artificial intelligence can speed up insights, you know, path to insights. And so our technology is has always been enabling that process, but up until now, it's been analysts who derive the insights. And what we realize is there's... The amount of data is just growing exponentially. So the need to help those analysts walk in the door in the morning to a set of insights that are based on the things they're looking for uh, will greatly speed up their work and in in turn speed up optimization. Describe to me what one of these analysts might be doing. So like, first off, are they here or are they based overseas somewhere? I think it's both, but um, there's there's a lot of high-end analysts and uh, data science folks across the U.S. and globally. Oh, I thought these were your own. You're talking about your customers. Correct. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. No, our platform is a, a, a technology platform that customers license to use with their data scientists, data analysts. Okay. And is it a SaaS model or an agency model? It's a SaaS product. Got it. And uh, we, we license it and uh, we do provide some managed services for certain customers who have very special needs, but for the most part, it's, it's out of the box. Can I transfer that to the ones that pay you the most? <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. Good. And what is the average kind of customer paying you? Uh, customers start at about three thousand a month and, and go up. It varies greatly depending on if the customer has a global footprint. We have customers operating with us in over twenty countries with a lot of brands, and so obviously that that increases the cost significantly. And before we go back to kind of the the founding story and how you got into this, though, what would you say the average is across your entire customer base in terms of you know monthly ARPU? I would probably say it's about six thousand a month. Okay, cool. And and is that pricing? Uh, people pull different levers to get more. You know, get customers paying more based off utility. What are some of those levers you pull? Like number of seats or additional products? What are those levers? Yeah. So so unlike a lot of the folks in the industry who charge by the line of data or by seats, we choose not to do either of those things. Instead, we charge by the data uh, stream. So how many sources of data and how many specific streams you might pull. So, for example, if you're pulling in Google 
uh, data, you, you might have 20 brands, that would be 20 streams of data. Um, same source, but 20 different streams for 20 different brands. And why do a stream versus like an API, API call or number of seats or these other metrics? Well, the API call is how we bring in the data. So, so we use API calls. Our customers can also manually upload the data, bring it in from email, bring it in from many other ways, FTP calls and whatnot. But, but um, regardless of how you bring it in, it's the number of data streams determines the volume of data that you're ultimately going to have in the platform, how much is moving around, and therefore how much it should cost. Got it. Now, take us back to the founding story. You said seven years ago. So what was it, 20, 20, 2010, something like that? Yeah, we, we, we started in my kitchen with sketching it out at the end of 2009, and then we launched in 2010. And like a lot of young companies, we, we started with a very clear idea that we want to use data to make marketing smarter, better, faster. But um, you know, we had to kind of find our way to the right product that the market would actually uh, adopt. And, um, and the way we did that was to work very closely with customers over a period of, of years to actually develop a product that met there was tailor-made for them really who is then, who uh, is we by the way do you have co-founders i had to have, have a couple of uh, folks who've been here from the beginning yeah young reg who's a norwegian chap uh, has been here from the very beginning and then a series of people who came in in 2011 and 12 you laughed when i asked that why yeah well we've been grinding the sausage for a long time together <laughs> got it got so, it what does that mean like were you at your previous company together or how'd you meet you know i worked together uh he, he I, I ran a global business prior to this for Edelman. I built their digital business from the ground up. And uh, a couple of years prior to starting this business, Young came in. We, we had uh, bought a couple of businesses, merged, and I merged three or four different businesses together over a fairly short period of time. He came in to help me to get everybody on the same hymn sheet. That's so funny. And why? I mean, that sounds like a pretty sweet gig at Edelman. What was the final plug for you? Why give all that up? Good question. <laughs> I get asked that quite a lot. Uh, yeah, it was a great gig. I loved it. I was there for 11 years. Um, that, that was uh, then and continues to be their fastest growing business. Um, and, and you know, it was, a, it was a role in which I probably reinvented myself every couple of years. Uh, what, what was fascinating to me, however, was um, the way technology was going to change the way we uh, conduct marketing. And I you know, felt at the time I'd helped a lot of young technology startup companies uh, by being their first customer there. And companies like Buzzmetrics, uh, Radiant 6, Buddy Media, others, we were literally among their first customers. You should have took, took equity. Yeah, no, seriously. And, and, uh, but but as, as I was doing that and helping them uh, build their businesses, the role they played was to help us to differentiate our services, right? So we used technology to really get a jump on the competition, and it worked very, very effectively for us. So um, at some point, I thought, you know, this would be really fun to do on my own. Um, and I'd had a couple of startups previously, so I thought, let me, let me try that. And so that's how Velocity got born. So how old were you when you left your Edelman job? Oh, we don't disclose age here. It's, oh, uh, you come know, on. Give me, <laughs> give me a range if you're not uh, comfortable. I'm over half a century on what? the planet. So I'm over half a century on the planet. Now, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm curious because we have listeners of all age types and they like to kind of compare to get a sense of where you are in life compared to them. I mean, do you, so how seven so, years ago, how old were you? 43. 43. Okay, perfect. This is a, you should celebrate age. It's a beautiful thing. Are people laughing around you? Are you lying to me? Uh, no, not at all. 
I did my first startup when I was in my uh, early, uh, late twenties, and, and then early thirties. I did I did three altogether, and then started the Edelman Digital business, which was really starting a business inside of a business. So I suppose I've always been doing startups, and and uh, now you know I guess it's a little unusual to see, uh, but actually more frequently you see folks like myself who are actually still doing early stage businesses as we enter uh, you know our midlife, and so the biggest it's a ones unusual, but but. Yeah, some of the bigger ones, and, and I think it's it's uh, kind of a different mindset. You know, you're either an entrepreneur, you know, who who is you hear this term of, of, of serial entrepreneurs. I always think it's a very strange term, but but people who actually, for whatever reason, go back and do it again and again, um, and they find patterns and things that they find work, and, yep. and they just keep doing that. And I suppose to some degree, I've done that as well inside large companies and outside them as well. So where did you give me a sense of where your brain was at when you launched this company? Like, had you already, a lot of people say your first kind of million in terms of personal wealth was the hardest. And after that, you kind of got to take big risks because you're set. Had you already kind of had a financial event, whether it was an exit of one of your first startups or your Edelman salary and saving or whatever, did you already have a financial event where you felt like you had kind of the cushion where you could go take another risk? Or do you like to put everything on the wall and go for it all with nothing in savings? <laughs> well, I think every entrepreneur uh, you know, takes risks, um, and the question is, how measured are, are you? You know, do you, to, your, to your point, do you throw it all against the wall and hope for the best? Um, yeah, I'd say it'd be hard hard pressed to find an entrepreneur who who hasn't ended up taking more risk than they originally planned. I want to know for you um, though, because you're unique. You have your own unique story. For you, how did you handle risk? Sure. Well, for me, I had always separated my personal uh, assets from my work. Um, and even when I'd done early stage startups uh, previously, which I built and sold a couple of businesses, uh, my, my goal was always to try not to impact you know, my personal situation. So if I had a house or an apartment, whatever it was, I try to keep those separate. So for me, that was the first criteria. Um, but when we were doing this business, it, it, over the course of time, we bought a couple of businesses and we've expanded in different ways. And so that it was quite a capital intensive first couple of years. Um, so I, I was fortunate to have had some success earlier, as you mentioned, both at Edelman and with prior startups and stuff. And then, and, and as also I'd been doing some real estate investing. So I built up, you know, some personal assets that I was able to put to work and then, Friends and family came in and, and also invested in the business, and that's how we kind of really got going in the early stage capitalizing. It was not just my, my own effort this time around, but with, with others. What, what money did you bring in to capitalize it when you started, and how much have you raised to date? So um, we, 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 friends and family probably put in about $3 million into the business in the early years, and then uh, we, we just closed an institutional round for about $12 million, uh, at the end of last year, beginning of this year. So are those the only two, 15 million total? Yes. And why did you decide to do the recent one, the $12 million one? Um, really to accelerate our growth, we, we got to a, a particular scale um, and we, we had a lot of uh, ambitious plans for how to grow the business, both domestically and overseas. We wanted to bring new product to market faster. Um, we, we have ambitious plans on, on both corporate development, uh, you know, our organic corporate development, but also our, our view on what we can acquire to help accelerate our growth. And so 
having more capital allows you more options. It's really that simple and, and, and more runway to get them done. Yep. Now, did you have a good sense? A lot of times, a reason people raise capital is they really understand like what it costs them to acquire a customer and they know that their lifetime value is higher and their economics are sound. What's it cost you to acquire a customer on average? It's a great question. Uh, we don't generally reveal that information, but, but what I would say to you is that- Make that me feel special, David. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, our model is shifting. So, so whereas we've been really a, a channel-based business, so our, all of our customers historically were large global agencies, uh, and they continue to be our, our big customers. Um, we're increasingly working with brands and publishers and uh, other folks outside of the agency ecosystem, and, and we have a, a bunch of new channel and partner types, for example, um, uh, data science businesses and and uh, uh, consulting companies, to name a couple of examples. And so the way we go to market has changed quite a bit. And, and, the, and the model and cost for acquiring a customer in any one of those verticals is a little bit different. Um, and so, for example, if, if I want to acquire a new global agency client, uh, that could take a year and, and it could cost, you know, couple hundred thousand dollars to to go through that process by contrast i might acquire a new customer from networking and that might cost me a couple hundred bucks or i might yeah be advertising and, and and therefore it might be you know 50 bucks for a lead or it might be sure. you know yeah, David, you obviously have cohort analysis going on, which is, I mean, every every SaaS company has different cohorts that perform very, very differently, right? In, sure. in each cohort, I imagine you have some ratios you like to live by. So let's maybe talk about those instead of definitive numbers. Uh, is there an LTV to CAC ratio you like to live by no matter what cohort you're looking at? Um, <laughs> you know, again, I'm not totally comfortable to just like blurt out the numbers that we live by, but... Um, Generally speaking, um, you know, when we're when we're looking at our business, we're, we're we're trying to compare ourselves to some of the classic businesses out there. It, you know, we live in an era where there's no RFPs for the work that we do, so we're still very much charting a course. So the kind of analysis that you're describing would make sense if I had a very high volume of customers, or I had, you know, global footprint, or I was able to say to myself, "Hey, I got 100 customers in these five major geographic areas, and what's my." you know, cost of acquisition in each of those areas and how does that compare and contrast and what's my media mix. And, but we're not at that no, level. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm more interested in pulling lessons out that like tidbits of information that are applicable to anybody listening right now running their own SaaS business, right? Sure. So like there, there must be an LTV to CAC ratio you like to try and stick by or that you use like a gauge just like an airplane pilot would use their tools to fly the plane properly. Um. Don't tell me your numbers. I mean, they don't have to be your numbers exactly. I'm just curious for you, like, what do you, what feels good for you? It doesn't have to be the actual number in your business currently. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think what I would say to you is um, I, we, we, we look at our, we look at the first first things we're trying to deliver for our customers is is what's the value to them as opposed to the customer lifetime value to us. You know, so so I think a lot of entrepreneurs focus on what they're getting, but if we first focus on what we're delivering to our customers, and that's true of all of our upcoming products you mentioned, our AI product. You know, so for example, if I was to say to you, you know, that that our product pays for itself in the first month, we derive those kinds of analyses with our customers, where we actually work with their analysts to say, okay, you know, what level of efficiency can we help you achieve in your first month, your second month, your third month? 
And so, for example, can we, how much of your time can we give you back so you can spend that time on other tasks? Or how much of your time can be spent deriving insights which lead to, to optimization, which leads to you know, better performing media? And what's the value of that to you and to your customer? Um, so those are, that's where we begin. Um, in terms of the customer lifetime value for ourselves, you know, when we deliver those kinds of metrics to our customers, that makes us very sticky, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we, we think about ourselves. As what, can being, you quantify that? What is very sticky? You know, customers who've been with us for five years, for example, and are not going anywhere. Okay, so you have and, less. Than, you have less than. I mean, you have like over ninety percent annual retention. Then. Yes. Yeah. And then, uh, have you reached kind of the holy land yet, which you know very well, which is kind of net negative uh, uh, in terms of revenue expansion because you're really good at driving upsells and additional value? Uh, we have a long ter- long way to go before we reach the point of diminishing returns on, on new business development. But but look, I mean, not I, new. Most- Sorry, the question I was just asking was on expansion into your current base. Current- Current clients, yeah. I mean, some of our clients have thousands of customers, and we're maybe working with dozens of those customers. So there's plenty of, of room to grow uh, with our existing clients. Um, but one of the things that has changed is the way, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we've sort of, we're evolving how we go to market. Our product is evolving very significantly. So, for example, um, you know, for some of our large customers, we we work with them very closely to create things that are unique to them to help them be more sticky with their customers. Again, going back to what's their customer lifetime value. If it's good for them, it'll be good for us. Um, what we're, how we're evolving now is we're innovating at a much faster pace in our own product and bringing that to our customers every quarter so that they're literally tapping into a stream of, of innovation and the, you know, for example, our upcoming release of artificial intelligence which we release next month, and, and uh, we have a series of then uh, rolling releases that are occurring. Those innovations are are geared all geared based on customer insight. What do the customers want from these types of products? Uh, versus, you know, to your point, everybody's using the word AI, but what does that actually mean? And so, so again, when we think about the customer lifetime value, it's really you know aligning those two things, and then and then bringing product that allows us to scale globally with those customers. So that, so that we don't rely just on humans to scale, but that we can rely on product to scale. So mm-hmm. let me give you two examples. This year, we've uh, greatly expanded our um, automated uh, self-serve platform. So now our customers can go in and, and load in, you know, over 100 different data sources. David, where, where are you, by the way, so we can get a sense of scale here. I mean, how many customers today are you serving? Uh, in the hundreds. Okay, got it. So, so, I mean, can we call, can we say more than 300, but less than 800? Less than 500. Less than 500. Perfect. Great. And and so, uh, you know, today, though, as we talk to our customers about how we can service them differently, we're, we're bringing product to the marketplace that they can scale at their pace into their customer base. They don't rely on us to do that scaling, whereas maybe in prior years, we would have had to help them to do that scaling. Yep. Sure. So, so it's more cost-effective scaling, right? You don't have to put it, you don't have to put touch on that via an inside salesperson. Correct. Yep. But in order to get to the point where we knew what it was that we needed to bring to market, we had to work with those customers to see what their barriers were sure. and help them overcome that. So self-service means two different things, right? It connotates, hey, I'm going to point, click, drag, drop, and off I go and do it myself. But it's more than that. It's also about being able to self-serve your training so you can onboard new staff, uh, administer those staff. If somebody leaves the company, you can deactivate them. You don't need to call us to do that. Um, so all, all those kind of uh, 
process things that, that are very important to customers that we help them to think through and, and, and anticipate. And then, and then I think the second thing that we're bringing to them is uh, also in response to their requests, which is our artificial intelligence release will uh, actually begin to speed up the process of, of arriving at insights. So mm-hmm. um, the overused term, uh, the paradigm shift, but you know, the analysts up until fairly recently and even today uh, often use Excel and PowerPoint and they're manually gathering data, running pivots inside that data to to derive their insights. Um, very, very highly manual task. And what we're doing is those same analysts instead will arrive in to a dashboard full of insights. Those insights will be based on criteria they've set and they will then be able to dive into the data behind those insights. So it's a complete reversal of the way that they work. Whereas an analyst what if they don't set the right criteria and as a response that they don't get any value from your platform? How do you handle those scenarios? Well, we deliver all the core criteria and then they have the ability to tailor it. So, so for example, there'd be standard looks that they may come into. They may come in and say, okay, what are the top performing media assets? What are the top performing publishers? What are the top performing KPIs? What are, you know, so all of that stuff's available in drop-down menus. They can just click and point. But, but then... Um, they have the ability to go in and create their own custom metrics. So in theory, if you're giving that, let's say you have 100% market penetration, right? You're giving perfect data to all these people. Who wins? Let's say two competitors use you. Who wins? Uh, that's a great question. I think that comes down to the quality of the media buy and, the, uh, and of course, the, the quality of the creative. And, mm-hmm. and frankly, that product's attractiveness to the marketplace. But if we're talking about Pepsi versus Coke, you know, we're not ever going to be working with those two brands side by side. But but uh, I think the answer to the question is, you know, uh, if we were working for one of those brands, and we have, uh, then we would think that brand has a better chance of outperforming competition mm-hmm. because we're going to give it better information faster uh, to the right people so they can make better decisions. Yeah, this is what I struggle with AI, right? Is like all these platforms that say they're doing AI, and maybe they actually are, assume that they keep growing as a business, what any business wants to do, it becomes less viable because if my competitor has the exact same data that I have, assuming we're rationally smart business people, we likely will make the same decision the more complete data set we have. This comes back down to why I believe creatives are actually going to rule the world very soon because it's going to be the people that do creative things with the perfect data that everybody else has it's going to ultimately determine who wins and you can't automate that and that's not ai well um you can speed the path okay so if we if we live in a world where do you agree data, with that by the way i i agree the creativity rules i but but i think the creativity underpinned with great data is better creative so if, if, if you, for example, but assume everyone has the same data, let's say you grow, you kill it, you crush it. It's a, we're talking in a year and you're a billion dollar company about to go public, right? You have people in industries that are competitors that both have your exact same data, your exact same tools. The one that's going to win is not going to then be reliant on your tool. It's going to be who has the more creative thinker around your tool. Sure. Yeah. I think that data, data informed creative is, is better, is better creative. Look, again, same, same concept. But if you start off, put a, two creative directors in a room and you say to one creative director... You know, this is the start of a good book. I can feel it. You put two creative directors in a room. <laughs> you, you give one creative director, you know, no data, and, and, and but they're both equally talented. And you give the other person a set of data that tells them all about their customer and what's working. Oh, what's of not course. Working. The one with more data is going to win. 
necessarily. Yeah. Right? No, so, my assumption is if you kill it and everyone has access to this data, who wins, right? I'm, I'm foreshadowing a little bit. Yeah, that, you're right. At that point, it'll come down to the creative and it'll come down to the quality of the media. And if that happens, you're ruling the world. So that's that's a good thing for everyone, right? We'll take it. And, you're, and I get a steak dinner. <laughs> You'll have earned it. <laughs> All right. All right, David, last question here. So you said uh, you said under 500 customers. Earlier in the interview, you said, you know, around a $6,000 ARPU average. So I can assume you're doing less than $3 million in monthly recurring revenue. Is that accurate? <laughs> we, we have customer, you know, so when you ask about the average, uh, just to be clear, we have customers who are spending quite a lot more than that. Well, I know. Uh, that's why it's an average. But when I think about the average, what I'm trying to create a picture of is that, you know, for a lot of the brands that we work with, the, especially with those who are on our self-serve platform, they tend to be smaller brands, mid-sized brands. Uh, but we work with some of the largest advertisers in the world, and those customers spend an order of magnitude more than that, as you can imagine. So if you're, you know, some of the global agencies or their customers, and we're working in 20, 30 countries, pulling in oh, they're huge. 100 data sources, those are major accounts. Yeah, yeah. So separate those two things. Maybe the better answer to your earlier question is, what's a large customer versus a small customer? And, and so if I think about the average is probably more applicable to our you know, average smaller customer. But, but so know, 6,000 is more related to your, your average smaller customer then? That's correct. So, so it's first, you're doing more than that. Come on, own it. You can say you're killing it. You're doing more than $3 million per month. <laughs> okay, you guys can look at us smile. They're doing great. <laughs> You're doing all right. Thank you. Nathan. I won't. I won't pin you down more than that. But it is helpful to understand some context of how you're doing it. it sounds like you're doing just fine. Yeah. I mean, look, our, our business is doing well, and and our customers are doing well, and that's what we care about the most. And you know, obviously, you don't attract a large amount of investment from people like Newberger Berman and Pilot Growth unless you've done something with your business. Edelman is jealous they lost you. They're reading about your success. They're, they listen to the Top Entrepreneur podcast. They hear you about doing all this, and they write you a $200 million check to sell to them. Do you take it? Maybe we'll do the Snapchat, right? Pull that for more. <laughs> it's a disappearing question. All right, guys, I talked about this earlier, but I schedule like so many meetings, it would blow your mind. I mean, all my podcast interviews, right? Hundreds of entrepreneurs I talk to monthly, I schedule. And you know what? I do it so efficiently. I get them all to agree to my calendar. So all the calls are back to back to back. That means I'm not switching in between tasks all day long. I get them to batch so that I can be very efficient. It's so critical. I use a tool called Acuity Scheduling to do this at nathanlacka.com forward slash schedule. It eliminates the back and forth between me and people I'm trying to meet with. It makes it very simple. And most importantly, they help me keep my no-show rate very low because they send out reminders. Helps you look very professional. So go to nathanlacka.com forward slash schedule to sign up. And you get a great deal. You know, you guys know this. I hit people hard. I make great deals. And Gavin, the CEO, has given us a great deal. If you sign up like normal people, okay, on their website, you only get a 14-day free trial. If you use my link, nathanmaka.com forward slash schedule, you get 45 days free. Okay, it's the best. It's free. Go to nathanmaka.com forward slash schedule right now to sign up. And I'll see you there. David, David, let's wrap up here with the famous five. Number one, what's your favorite business book? Oh, I, I think it has to be Selling the Invisible, Harry Beckwith. Uh, it was the first time I actually read a book that described the, the, the marketing and advertising business, uh, Selling the Invisible. No, number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying? Oh, you know, I admire quite a few different people over the years. Um, somebody that I admire who is just has always been an innovator is, is Richard Branson. 
um, because he all he's such a believer in brand and such a believer in you know the customer. So why you know, has he let Virgin go to Alaska Airlines, a shit aircraft carrier? <laughs> well, I am a little puzzled. I hope Alaska is not one of your clients. <laughs> Alaskan is not, but I actually like quite like Alaska. But anyway, oh my gosh, they upcharge you on everything. Well, yeah, I haven't been on them in a little while, but there you go. I'm a more more of a Delta kind of a guy. But anyway, the, uh, Virgin, don't know, but he did sell half of Virgin Atlantic to Delta, so I benefit from that one. <laughs> yeah. All yeah, right, curious move. And number three, is there a uh, is there a favorite besides your own? Is there a favorite online tool you have? Um, uh, I would have to say, um, why am I blanking? Uh, uh, certainly, uh, you know, the tools that I use that I like the most, it's probably going to be Tidal. Tidal? T-I-T-L-E? T-I-D-A-L. Oh, oh, got it, got it. That's like, what, the music app? Yeah. Very cool. Number four, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Five to six. Okay. And uh, what's your current situation? Married, single, you have kiddos? Married, two boys. Oh, great. And you said you're, you're 50 years young. Last question, take us back 30 years. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? Hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> Things are changing fast. You got to move faster. There you guys have it from David. Things are changing fast. You got to move faster. Hurry up. Again, had many startups before joining Edelman, stayed there for many, many years, and then back in 2010, launched his marketing technology company, Velocity, just now getting into AI. They've got a team. Oh, David, how, how big is the team, by the way? 52 today and growing. That's amazing. So 52 people. Again, they've got uh, about $15 million raised, serving uh, under 500 customers. Again, pay, paying, you know, call it, they're doing well more than $3 million per month. He won't admit that, but the big smile confirms it. Over 90% annual retention rate. Again, helping these agencies, these marketing folks, these analysts better understand how to capture, use, and gain insights, actionable insights from the data sets they're pouring over every day. David, thank you for taking us to the top. Nathan, special. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode with David, go back and listen to Aaron yesterday. He's raised $24 million, but my question is, why is he building a financial technology company on the back of advisors, which are going out of fashion?